We're going to be finishing our series on this psalm, and Lord willing, next week we will begin our three-part Christmas series for the year, and uh, looking forward to that, have something in mind here to uh, really proclaim, and I'm looking forward to doing that. And so Psalm 11, we're going to read the whole psalm together. But the passages that we'll be dealing with is verses 4 through 7 as we conclude this psalm. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. As we introduced this psalm, we made the comment that all the books of psalms, there are five books there within our collection that we call psalms, that it has been said that all of those psalms are founded upon the premise of the first two. And I want us to look at those first two again this morning as part of our review. That if you look at Psalm 1, He talks about the blessed man. This psalm is really only completely fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ himself. But he speaks of the blessed man, not from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective. The blessed man is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is not with the wicked or with sinners or with scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You will notice in Psalm 1 and verse 4, it declares that wicked people are not like this. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. But in verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Will perish. Then you have on that side, blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord and in that law meditates in contrast to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, you have the nation's response to God's chosen king. It says in verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and 
cast away their cords from us. Basically, wicked people do not love the Lord in any shape, fashion, or form. They don't delight in the Lord's restraints. They don't delight that when the Lord says, don't do this, they want to do it. And when the Lord says, do this, they don't want to do that. They are in rebellion against the Lord. And those peoples gather themselves together into nations and governments against the Lord and against His Messiah. And that Messiah is the one whom God Himself has installed. If you look at Psalm 2 verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. Who is this king? Verse 7. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my what? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And we know from the New Testament that Psalm 2 verse 7 was fulfilled on the day, the morning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he rose not only called a king, he rose as king. God the Father has appointed him, in spite of all the governments of the world, in spite of all mankind wanting to rule themselves or rule their own lives or rule over everybody else, God himself has chosen his own king and he is righteous. And all the other Psalms that are in the book of Psalms, all 148 of them, deal with the conflict that is going on between the righteous people, not righteous in themselves, but because of the Lord, righteous people versus unrighteous people. And there is conflict. The seed of the serpent is in constant conflict against the seed of the woman. And Psalm 11 gives us some of that conflict that is going on and a righteous response of David as a righteous man and of the Lord because he himself is righteous. It says in Psalm 11, Why do you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? I'm going to take my refuge in the Lord. Whatever the situation is, whatever the situation that was causing fear to David and his counselors, David had received counsel to flee like a startled bird to his own mountain of safety, to his own place of trust and security. And David, recognizing that bad counsel, basically said to that counselor, why in the world do you say this to me? Why do you say, flee like a startled bird, flee like natural man does, flee like our first involuntary action is? No, I'm going to take refuge in the Lord. And folks, this is going on in spite of what is happening around him. What is happening around him? Well, verse 2, that counselor makes sure that David knows what is going on. This is public. This is seen. 
Wicked people are preparing their weapons to execute violence upon him. Wicked people are loading and sharpening their arrows. Wicked people are hiding in the darkness to shoot at the righteous from a totally unforeseen position, like Judas betraying the Lord. These arrows are targeting the upright in heart. And the advice of the counselor, verse 3 Well, David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, if wicked people multiply to the place where the upright in heart are torn down and overthrown in Israel, in a society, is there any hope at all? And folks, you and I can be in a position where in our heart the thought arises... Is there any hope at all? There is no hope. What can I do? Well, folks, what can the righteous do? And that's exactly the question that the counselor asked in the end of verse 3. What can we do, David? We've got to flee like a bird to our own man-shift devices and places of safety. Well, folks, what can the righteous do? Do we have any options in a nation that is being flooded with evil? that we hear of wicked people devising things against the Lord and against His church. We just had a thing pass in Congress that basically has tore down all that is involved in what the Bible would call marriage between a man and a woman. This is a nation that is collecting itself together against the Lord and against His rule and reign through Christ. What can we do? Well, folks, what we can do is what already has been noted. We can take refuge in the Lord. Now, you're probably not going to hear that from other Christian people, and you're probably not going to hear that in many places of worship. What you may hear is that we need to get angry. What you may hear is that we need to take placards and go marching around Washington, D.C. What you may hear is a rise up in stubbornness of heart. They're not going to tell me what to do. But the answer is very simple. Take refuge in the Lord. That is exactly what David said, did he not? He just declared it emphatically in verse 1, In the Lord I take my refuge. Now folks, that in itself probably doesn't surprise us having read this psalm. But I have to ask the question, well, that's great, Pastor, but what does it look like to take refuge in the Lord? 
<clears throat> we have all kinds of cliches and platitudes that we tell ourselves, right? And they mean absolutely nothing. <laughs> I used to run marathons, and it'll be at mile 20, and I'm about to die and pass out, and people in the crowd would be saying, You look good. <laughs> And I know they're lying. They would be lying if they told me that at the start. But I believe it. (laughs) What does that mean? What does it mean to take refuge in the Lord? What type of mindset would a believer have that would demonstrate and show that you are taking refuge in the Lord and not in yourself and not in another man and not in human government. What would that mindset look like? Because folks, it's not a place that you go and there's just a fiery cloud over it. You go into the cloud and nobody can see you, right? It's not physical. God is a spirit. He is invisible to our eye except through the person of Jesus Christ. What would that mindset look like? Well, it would be our full persuasion of certain things and knowledge about the Lord Himself and His activity toward people. First of all, we could ask this question, where is the Lord in our fears? And you'll see that in verse 4. Where is the Lord? He is in His holy temple. You will see that in a question that is unstated directly, but in verses 4 and 5, we would ask this question. If we know where He is, well, is He asleep? Does he care about what is going on? And then in verses 6 and 7, we'll see that God is loves. He is a God of love. What does that mean? What does that look like? How does that bring us refuge in the Lord in which we are taking? So first of all, our full persuasion of this truth about the Lord Himself, and that is where He is in our fears. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heavens. Folks, one of the things that you and I rarely do in this life is look up. If I was to ask you to compare the amount of time that you spend with your eyes this way, horizontally, or this way, looking down, versus lifting up your eyes and looking into the heavens, I would dare say that it is very few in comparison. The Lord is in His holy temple. And the Lord's throne is in the heavens. 
In other words, brethren, when we have our fears and we are tempted to flee like a startled bird to our own made-up places of securities, we need to understand that the Lord is far, far, far above all the commotion that is surrounding us. Commotion tends to draw our eyes to the commotion. Why? Because we are fearful. But the Scripture tells us, as believing people, that we should lift up our eyes. And folks, this is really just kind of a manner of prayer because you know in the Scripture that a lot of times it refers to prayer by lifting up your arms. You cannot lift up your arms without almost involuntarily moving your head to look upward. The Lord is in His holy temple. His throne is in the heavens. There is a literal, physical, heavenly, holy of holies. That earthly Jewish temple was nothing but a shadow of the reality. And heaven is God's throne. And folks, because He is far above all the commotions of the earth and all the fears of the earth that you and I experience under the sun, because He is far above all that, now think with me, what is happening to this man David? The wicked are drawing their bows, right? But folks, the Lord is far above the reach of any wicked person. Folks, what is the concern? The concern is is that wicked people are going to triumph. But folks, in order for that to happen, they would have to reach God. Where is He? He is in His holy temple. Where is He? He's on a throne. Heaven is His throne. And dare I say what is completely obvious, not one of us can ascend up into heaven to attempt to overthrow God. God is in the heaven. God is on His throne. And folks, we need to understand, like David understood, that ultimately the wicked's arrow at the upright in heart is really an arrow at the Lord Himself. They can't shoot it up there. He's not here physically. They can't see Him. So they go after His people who are the physical representatives of Him on this earth. They go after the church. What they're doing is attempting to tear away the fetters of the Lord and His Messiah to tear them apart and to cast away all God's restraint on humanity so that they have the freedom to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, however they want to do it. 
And that's exactly what's going on in our nation, isn't it? I want to love, quote-unquote, whoever I want to love, whenever I want to love, at any time, in marriage, outside of marriage, doesn't matter. And you can't tell me not to do that. I mentioned this on Wednesday that I heard a man who was commentating on this, and I don't know if it was a senator or it was someone that was affiliated with that marriage act, and they said that the next thing that they want, that that marriage act was just a start because what they really want is to remove any church that declares that what they're doing is wrong. That is trying to cast away the restraints of the Lord. And folks, it is true, it doesn't have to be as grievous as that, right? It's nothing more than you and I wanting to do what we want to do when we want to do it. That is sin. That is transgression. That is what we need to be saved from. And folks, as long as our eyes are all down here horizontal, or like Pilgrim's Progress, the muckraker, and he's just got his head down on the earth, mucking around on the dirt there, if our eyes are horizontally, or our eyes are on the earth, then we will forget the Lord. But the Lord is in His holy temple. And heaven is His throne. So folks, when the fears come, now hear me because we all forget this, I included. When the fears come, where do we go? In the Lord we take our refuge. What do we say to ourselves? He is in His holy temple. Heaven is is His what? Throne. Theologians refer to this as His sovereign rule and reign over all things. His government over all things. Now folks, it is one thing for us to say verse 4 to ourselves. And I think that if I was to give a quiz, even in your deepest fears, and I would ask you, is the Lord in His holy temple? Is the Lord sovereign? Is He reigning? I think probably every believer would say, what? Absolutely. But folks, what happens and what is a temptation to us is that when the fears and the flood of the wicked come against them personally or to the church, is that we wonder if the Lord's going to do anything about it. In other words, we asked ourselves these questions Does he care? Folks, you ever prayed about a fear and it didn't seem like anything was happening? 
If I was to ask how many of you have prayed for our governmental leaders over the past years, I am sure that all of our hands would go up. Has it seemingly got better? Well, does God not care? Has He forgotten about me and my prayers? Or as Psalm 121 says, is He asleep? Is He yawning because He's tired? Is He distracted from all of this? Folks, if I'm running to Him for refuge... And then it doesn't feel like that I'm being sheltered. (laughs) And it doesn't feel like that I'm being protected from the evil. We are tempted to question whether the Lord really does care about that situation. And you and I can sit here in all of our self-righteousness and say, I've never done that, and I would debate that with you. When prayers go on day after day, and week after week, month after month, and the situation doesn't seem to improve, we begin to think in our heart, it is part of our flesh. Our flesh begins to say, God doesn't care about you. He's probably not even hearing you. You're probably a really bad sinner and He's not hearing your prayers. You might not even be saved because God always hears the prayers of other people. This is not the scriptural response. Folks, the Sovereign One, the One who is in the Holy of Holies, the One who is in the heaven which is His throne, He declares that He is not asleep and He is not slumbering and He is not distracted on some other errand. (laughs) But He is active. And He is doing something. What is He doing as we go to Him, the Lord being our refuge, what is He doing while we are taking our refuge in Him? He is seeing. Look at the passage. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men the Lord test the righteous and the wicked. Does everybody see that? <clears throat> Folks, here we are in Psalm 11. We are full of fears. We are not going to be like a startled bird. But we are going to think soberly and we're going to take our fears and our cares and go to Him for refuge. We're going to hide under His wings. We're going to be under the shadow of the Almighty. We're going to go to Him like a high tower. 
And we're going to pray to Him for deliverance. But it doesn't seem like He cares. It doesn't seem like He's doing anything about it. And the, and the Bible comes back to us and says, Oh yes, He is active because He is watching. And folks, that's what we need to tell ourselves is that the Lord, He is sovereign, but He is also active and he, uh, His eyes are open and He is observing mankind. Do you see it there? His eyes behold. Is His eyes watching? His eyelids test the sons of men. In the Hebrew... The word for man in Hebrew is the word Adam. It can be translated Adam. His eyelids are testing the sons of Adam. Which of the sons is he observing? He is observing both the wicked and the righteous. Do you see that? God is testing the wicked. He is also testing who? The righteous. Folks, He's not testing them to sin. He is testing them to see how they will respond to these things. Folks, the Lord knows to whom you have gone for refuge. His eyelids are on you. They are open. They are watching. They are observing. And folks, to know that God knows all things, He sees how much? All things. He knows what you're doing. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what you don't know is going on in your heart. (laughs) He knows the very motions and affections that are going on inside of you. He reads it all. He knows it all. There is no darkness before His eyes. Even the darkness is light unto Him. And folks, the wicked are shooting their arrows at the upright in darkness. But it is open to the Lord. Not to our eyes. It'll be a surprise to us. But is it a surprise to Him? No. And folks, the interesting thing about this is is that wicked people hate the fact that God knows everything. Wicked people think that as they rest on their beds at night in the darkness that nobody knows what they're thinking but them. They think they're hidden from people. They think they have it all covered. But who sees? The Lord sees. And folks, believing people delight in the fact that God knows all things. It is a comfort to me that He knows me. My heart 
my affections, my mind, my behavior, my going forth, my coming in. He knows the thing I'm going to pray before I even know I pray it. I delight in that. But lost people don't delight in that. Why? Because they are doing wicked in their darkness. And folks, He is watching them and He is observing them in order to test them. In other words, the Lord's silence, we perceive it as silence to us. And the Lord's quietness to intervene in our request to Him. We, we look at that as if God doesn't care that He's asleep or maybe I'm not right or I've sinned too much, whatever. The Lord's quietness does not mean He's inactive. Folks, His quietness and His so-called delay is an opportunity for Him to observe the behavior and the motives of the righteous and the wicked. He wants to observe two things. What you do and what you love. Look at what it says. Look in verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who, what? Loves violence. The Hebrew word for violence there is basically a word that just means wrong. The one who loves wrong versus the one who loves who? Righteousness. It's not what we say with our lips. It's what's really in our heart. We're to love God with all our what? And the Lord is observing this. Now He already knows, amen? But you need to know. And folks, here's the conclusion of His observation. He is silent, but not inactive. He is observing the sons of men. He sees all, even that which is in darkness. And He is watching and observing to discern their love and their behavior. And folks, a righteous person loves righteousness and ultimately will make God His refuge. This is what we call sometimes being saved. Right? What what is it about being saved? saved, that means that I am fleeing to Him as my refuge. Well, I come to a place where I know that I am sinful. I just don't do certain bad things. I am sinful to the core of myself. I don't even know how sinful I am. But He does. 
and recognizing my sinfulness and recognizing that's who I am. I can't change myself. Something radical has to go on in my heart and in my soul. I flee to Him. The one who came to earth and died, not for His sin, but for mine. The one who is my atonement and my resurrection. He is my righteousness. He is my condemnation. He's my all in all. He's my obedience. He's everything to me. And I bow my knee to the one to whom I flee to. And when I bow my knee, I say to him, Save me! And aren't you glad He does? He that comes to Me, I will in no wise what? I have made the Lord my refuge. And folks, what happens at that point of justification is a rebirth occurs. New life is given. A new creation. The God of heaven and earth, the God who created everything that we see, does a recreation in you. Just like the original creation, He says, let there be light, and it was so. He says to me, let there be life, and there is so. In the place of darkness and death. And then from then on, my whole pilgrimage to glory is one constant going in and out of making Him my refuge. And folks, the older you get and the more mature you get, what you really want is just to make your abode there. There is a coming out and coming in like a shepherd with his sheep. We have to pilgrim through this life, do we not? But there gets to be a longing where you just want to stay there. And one day we will be there by His grace. And folks, the conclusion of God's observation is this. He concludes that the one who loves wrong, the one who does violence, or in this psalm, the one who's preparing the bow, sharpening the arrows, taking an aim at the upright, he, God's own soul, what to this person? Did you read that? I didn't I thought God was a God of love. Look at the text. What does it say? You probably won't see that on a billboard. <laughs> Folks, when a lost person is going down the road and they see God loves you, this is what they think. They think, oh, that's good. Because I don't need salvation and I don't need to be saved and I don't need to walk in righteousness. God loves me. Unconditionally. Doesn't matter what I do. And in a sense, there is some truth in that, right? We're saved by grace through not not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And folks, if we were to be accurate with all the scriptural texts, 
we would say this, that God both loves and hates the sinner. And we have a hard time doing that. How does He love the sinner? He sent His only begotten Son so that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Is that not love? And He hates them at the same time. For a believer, He loves us, period. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Why? Because He never hated His Son. And He will never hate a believer. Folks, He is a God who loves. And we need to understand this about God if we're going to take our refuge in Him. God does love after He tests the hearts and minds of the sons of Adam, He rewards them. He will send His judgment. Look at what it says. Verse 6, Upon the wicked He will... What's the verb? Rain. Rain. Where does rain come from? The sky. It comes from the heavens, doesn't it? Where is the Lord? Where is His throne? It's in the heaven. He rains, snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. What does a God who is love look like in relationship to sin and the sins of people and the lack of love that people have for Him? They love violence, not Him. What does the God of, God, a God of love do? He rains violence upon them. In other words, folks, is this not just? We talk about social justice. <laughs> Hear this. Is it not just to repay violence to those who are violent against you? Yes or no? Yeah. Someone says, well, I don't believe a God of love was sending anybody to hell. If you don't want God, He doesn't want you. If you don't want God in your life, He's not going to have you in His life. If you love violence and sin, you'll have it forever and the judgment thereof. Folks, He's going to rain on them. And when we read verse 6, rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind, immediately, if we have any biblical maturity about us at all, immediately we think of what? We think immediately of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is an example of the eternal fire. Folks, what God does, He observes, He attests, 
to look at their love and to look at their behavior, to give them time for repentance. And then, at the right righteous moment, He will give them in measure what is due to each one of them. Now this is amazing. That God can give a measure here and another greater measure here and a lesser measure there, but He can do that. And you'll see that it is a measure. Look at verse 6. It says, will be the portion of their what? Of their cup. It's measured. They will fall into their own snares. It's an amazing thing in the Scripture and in the Psalms, and we have illustrations of it, that when wicked people plot their own traps for righteous people, they fall into the trap. You think of Haman building the gallows for Mordecai, and he was hanged on the same gallows that he prepared for an upright man. That is the Lord. He rains their own snares back on them. And they will experience the Lord's anger. Fire and brimstone is illustrative of that. That's what the lake of fire is. The burning of God's anger. It's literal fire, literal torment, illustrative of God's anger. And there will be a burning wind. In other words, it will be a scorching rage from God will come upon them. And you recall in Psalm 1, you remember? The righteous man is like a tree planted beside the the waters, but the wicked are not so. They're like chaff. Well, what is chaff? It's just dried, withered up, easily blown away by the scorching wind. I lived in Israel for a while and they had a scorching wind. It's very, very warm wind that would go through and it would dehydrate you. You would not even know that you were being dehydrated. It's not like you would sweat. Like here we'd have high humidity and we're just sweating and sweating and sweating. You just walk around and all of a sudden you have heat exhaustion if you're not drinking because of those winds that would come through. And folks, here's the saddest thing, is that one day, wicked people will be away from His favor forever. There's a measure that's under the sun, and there is the full measure that is yet to come. Sometimes people will say, well, that person did some awful crimes, and They got away with it. You really think they got away with it? You really think the God of heaven and earth who sees all things is letting anybody get away with anything? Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody. There is this just measure by the Lord. The God who loves does not love wrong. He loves righteousness. 
And folks, what we will see, and this is so beautiful, that as I was preparing this message, it almost drew me to tears. As I was sitting there and really trying to hold in context this whole psalm, and trying to learn what does it mean to take refuge in the Lord. It means to understand that He's in the heaven, and He's on the throne, and He is sovereign, and He's not asleep, and He is observing, and He is testing. And at that right moment, He will repay the wicked, just like He will repay the the righteous. But one of the ways that we know that we have taken our refuge in the Lord is what we see when we are in that refuge. What do we see? Look at verse 7. The upright will see what? The upright will see His face. Folks, what we see when we take refuge in the Lord is His face. Now, I'm not talking about having a vision. I'm not talking about an out-of-the-body experience. I am talking about beholding His face. And we know in the New Testament that if we want to behold His face, we behold His face in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of the knowledge in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, folks, while I'm taking refuge and I am praying and I am telling myself these great truths, I'm telling myself those truths, but my Bible is open. And that illumination of that text is coming to me. And I am beholding something in that text, that living text, living in me with open eyes and open ears. It does something in me. What does it do? It is my security. It gives me a sense of safety. It gives to me a sense of assurance. David would mention this in Psalm 27. Listen to what it says. One thing. How many things? One thing I have asked from the Lord. And that one thing I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold, to see the goodness of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Where's His temple? It's in the heavenlies. 
And folks, we behold all that when we open our Bible, 2 Corinthians 4, and we behold as in a glass the glory of God. It's the Holy Spirit radiating on this text, opening our eyes to behold it. And that is our strength and our security. And folks, ultimately, we will be in that presence, that illumined presence forever in the new heavens and the new earth. In this life, it is so frustrating. (laughs) It is looking through a glass dimly. But one day, face to face. And when we see Him, we will be like Him. For we shall behold Him as He is. We will not be like the wicked who flee to the caves away from the glory of the Lamb. We will be fleeing to the Lamb to behold His face. Folks, that is our refuge in the days of our fears and our insecurities and our lack of assurances of the things that God has given. Now I want to conclude with this. Why does the Lord act this way? (laughs) Because if it was me, if you came to me and I had the means, you'd say, Pastor, deliver me. Alright, I'll write the check. Here. Why, why would, it, would I say, okay, and not help? Why would I want to observe? Why would I want to test the sons of men? Folks, from a human perspective, to assess the situation properly. To reward things properly. But why ultimately is the reason? Verse 7. The Lord is righteous. And He loves what? That's why He hates those who do wrong. He hates those who do wrong because He loves He's a God of love. Not our sin, but righteousness. And folks, you and I know who is the righteous one. It's not us. It's Christ. The Lord acts this way because of who He is. He's righteous. And he loves righteousness. So therefore, he cannot but hate the opposite of what he loves. And folks, I just give you a a silly illustration, probably not to my wife, but I just give you a silly illustration. When I walked the aisle and and my wife and I were married, I was telling her I love her above all the other women on the earth. Right? Right? in relationship to that love that I have for her I hate every other woman 
Right? Isn't that, ladies, what you want from your husband? You want to say, well, I love you 75%, but 25% over here with this other woman. No, you would say, you would just look at him and say, you don't love me. You don't love me. <laughs> Folks, the Lord doesn't love righteousness like 75%. He loves righteousness. And anything that's not righteous, He hates because He's the Lord. So therefore, if a human being loves unrighteousness, God hates that. If another human being behaves unrighteously and sins, He hates that. To love righteousness of necessity means you hate the opposite of it. If you love a garden and you love flowers and you're trying to get the most beautiful rose, you hate weeds. You don't say, oh, I know I'm trying to grow roses, but shouldn't be mean about these weeds. <laughs> no, you hate it. You pluck it out. And folks, contrary to what many churches proclaim today, and what our culture loves to promote as a cloak to hide their own sin, God loved them by sending His Son to deliver them from unrighteousness. And He hates unrighteousness. He hates the sin and the sinner. And they will receive a measured portion for their wrongs in this life. And they will receive the full portion of their wrongs in the future judgment in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So folks, the wicked are pursuing the upright. The upright are tempted to flee to their own devices of human safety and human trust. But though we're tempted, ultimately we don't go there. We flee to the Lord. In the Lord I take my refuge. And the reward of you taking that refuge is you get to behold His face. I can't think of any greater wealth than to know Him. And in time, the Lord will pursue the wicked who have no place to flee and no place to hide because they did not take refuge in the Lord. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.